Please open a Bible to Exodus chapter 8. We're going to beginning, begin reading at verse 20. Uh, if you're using the church Bible, that's on page 60, Exodus chapter 8. You might recall if you were here last week that the plagues that we're looking at in Egypt, the well-known ten plagues, come in three cycles of three plagues or signs each. So the rhythm is uh, uh, these triplets of plagues that come one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, before the catastrophic final death of the firstborn son. Uh, so we last week looked at the first cycle of plagues, the water turned to blood, uh, the frogs upon all the land of Egypt, and the little flies of some sort, insects. This week we're going to begin with big flies, so it's, it's not exactly clear how to distinguish those, but different types of bugs. Uh, if you're about the right age to know Street Fighter, uh, round two, fight. That's kind of where we begin here, that uh, it's, it's the second round of this battle. We begin in Exodus 8:20, and we'll read through 9:12. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses, and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies, and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be found there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people, tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and did not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel 
and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. And it shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. This is God's word. In this uh, second cycle of plagues, we notice a number of things. The Egyptian magicians and Aaron more or less fall into the background. Now it's a confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh. Uh, We see for the first time a separation between Israel and Egypt. So plagues fall on Egypt, but not on Israel. For the first time, Pharaoh is now willing to come to the bargaining table to try and strike a deal. And in 9.12, that last verse we read, for the first time in the story, the Lord himself strengthens or hardens the Pharaoh's heart. In the second cycle of plagues, 8.22 to 23 is the key. It sort of announces the theme, the point God is making through these signs. It says there that by setting apart the land of Goshen, God will make Pharaoh and the Egyptians know that the Lord is in the midst of the earth. That's the second step in the argument. And so the three themes I want to reflect on this morning, the three points are, first, the Lord is in our midst. Second, the Lord's judgment separates or sets apart. And third, the Lord's mission engages his people. If you were here last week, uh, you might recall the first cycle of plagues makes this simple point. By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Uh, Of course, not Lord as in the sense of master or king, but Lord is a proper name of the covenant God. By this you shall know I am Lord. The point of the first cycle of plagues is simply that the Lord exists, that he is there, that he is a God. And perhaps Pharaoh is willing to acknowledge that point. Uh, there is a being out there called Lord who is a god. Uh, Egyptologists have found 1,500 separate gods and supernatural beings that Egyptians recognized. Uh, Egyptians used, let me get the number straight, 56,500 different names and titles to describe these various deities. So what difference does it make to Pharaoh to add one more god to the list? Okay, I thought there was 1,500 gods. There's actually 1,501. So what? Okay, Israel has a god called Lord, but isn't he just the god of a tribe who has now been enslaved, the god of a defeated people? 
Maybe he's got a little energy left in the battery you know, to turn the car radio on, but not enough to turn the engine over. He can turn the Nile to blood, but what can he really do here in the land of Egypt? Now, at the beginning of our text that we read this morning, God again tells Moses, rise early in the morning and go confront Pharaoh along the waters of the Nile. It's the same instruction that began the first cycle of plagues. And you've got to wonder, when Pharaoh sees Moses coming out to him again at the same time and place, is there a knot in his stomach? Is he thinking, oh no, here we go again. Again, Moses is told to warn Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, let my people go, Uh, literally send my people out that they may serve me, or if you will not send my people, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and on your servants and on your people and into your houses and throughout the land. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of of the land. Uh, In Hebrew, the same word means earth or land. And the sense here is, I am the Lord in your land, Pharaoh. That last line is the key point God is making. The Lord is in the midst of the land. He's in the midst of the earth. And that's the first point I want to consider this morning. The Lord is in our midst. The Lord is in our midst. The point that the Lord is making to the Pharaoh through the cycle of signs is that he is not merely some God out there somewhere, the God that Israel worshiped back when they lived in Canaan, safely outside the borders of Egypt, but rather the Lord is here in the land. He's here. Uh, Maybe you remember in, in films like Alien or The Thing, the problem isn't that aliens exist in abstract out there. The problem is that they're here in our ship, right? That's the problem in Alien. And if Pharaoh would get the point, he'd have a similar fear. It's not just that there's a being called Lord out there somewhere, but he's here in the land. The question then is, who is the ultimate authority in the land? Is it God, the Lord, or is it Pharaoh? Of course, we modern people would never be so naive as to think God's authority ends at the border. Like you drive up to the border crossing and... Somehow God doesn't have authority on the other side. No, of course not. Uh, We are so much more wise and sophisticated. Instead of thinking that God's authority ends at a national or geographic border, we compartmentalize our lives and set up little borders in our heart. God has authority here, here, and here, but over there, no, that's none of his business. That's my own area that God doesn't get to talk to. Of course, we'd never put it so bluntly because it sounds foolish, doesn't it? And it is foolish. And yet daily, weekly, we do it nonetheless. We make the same mistake as Pharaoh. We put God in a box labeled religion, and it only makes a difference on Sundays, what sort of church we go to. But then Monday, as we go about our business, we bracket him out. We do our work Monday through Friday as if God makes no difference in our lives. Or we try to keep God out of certain areas of our lives, like our dating or our sexuality or our relationships or our politics. Right? We say religion and politics don't mix, so keep God out of it. Or we think God is irrelevant to what we do and see on our phones and computers. Friends, you and I know that we do the same exact thing as Pharaoh. We think there's borders that God cannot cross. Yet if the Lord is in our midst, then we must recognize his authority in every part of our lives. 
There can be no neat divisions between public and private, sacred and secular. As Abraham Kuyper puts it, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. God is in our midst, and that means every area of our life belongs to God. Unless we recognize that the Lord is in our midst, we're just as foolish as the Pharaoh. We deny God in our hearts by the way we live. That's the first point we need to reckon, reckon with. The Lord is in our midst. In every single area of our life, there's nothing hidden from him. How does God make this point to the Pharaoh that he's here in the land, in our midst? By making a distinction between the lands of Goshen and Egypt. And this is the second point we need to see this morning. The Lord's judgment separates. The Lord's judgment separates. In the fourth uh, plague, the Lord threatens to send massive swarms of flies. Maybe um, I'm picturing horse flies. I don't know if you've ever gotten into these, but they're nasty, you know, big flies. Uh, into the, on, on Pharaoh, on his servants, on his people, their houses. It says even the ground will be filled with them. People won't be able to eat without flies crawling on their food. They won't be able to sleep without flies crawling on their bodies. They won't be able to work without having to swat flies constantly. They won't be able to walk without stepping on flies. Their bodies will be covered with welts from fly bites. We are told their land will be destroyed. But, verse 22 says, there's an exception. The Lord will demonstrate that he is in the midst of the land. He's here in Egypt and active by setting apart the zone or, or county, whatever you want to call it, called Goshen, where his people dwell. The land of Goshen hasn't been mentioned yet in the book of Exodus, but back in Genesis, in Joseph's day, when Joseph delivers Egypt from a famine and Jacob comes down and the Pharaoh is, is well disposed towards Joseph because of his work, Pharaoh invites Jacob and his descendants, the Israelites, to live in the best of the land. But Jacob says, we'll live in Goshen, which is the region kind of by the Nile Delta, as close as possible to Canaan, the promised land. So they come to live in Egypt, but Jacob is wary. He doesn't want to be way down in the capital. He says, we'll be on the margin out here to try and preserve our own identity. Now, we are told the land of Goshen where the Israelites live will be free from flies. The Lord doesn't just send this plague indiscriminately from the outside, but in the midst of the land, and so distinguishes from between the area where the Egyptians are and the area where the Israelites are. The Lord's judgment separates. The flies are so severe that verse 24 says, throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the flies. And now the Pharaoh is willing to come to the bargaining table. To make sense of this dialogue between Pharaoh and Moses here, we have to take into account the peculiarities of bargaining. Okay, when you go to the grocery market and you're buying something, the price that cabbage, carrots, whatever it is, cost is posted on the shelf. And that's the price. But if you've ever been to a flea market or a bazaar over, you know, maybe in another country or a swap meet, that sort of thing, you know how it works. There is no fixed price. The price is only established through the process of haggling. It's through the process of bargaining that you come to a conclusion, what something is worth. And that's the sort of negotiation that Moses and Pharaoh enter into here. So Pharaoh starts out by lowballing Moses. You can sacrifice, 
but do it here in the land. It's a partial concession, but he's saying the three-day journey, that's off the table. Do your sacrificing here in the land. Moses counters with a very gentle response that lets Pharaoh save face. He says, it would be, not be right to do so for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. And if we do this before their eyes, they'll start chucking rocks at us. So we must go a three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. Okay, Moses is saying the problem is that the way we sacrifice, and it's never spelled out why, but the way we sacrifice is an abomination to the Egyptians. What's Moses saying? He's saying it's not you, it's us. Okay, let us out of the land so that we don't offend you. Moreover, Moses says it's just a three-day journey, although given the dynamics of bargaining, I think it's clear to both Moses and Pharaoh, once the people are out of the land, they will also be out from under Pharaoh's authority and they will not be seen again. Pharaoh counters, I will let you go sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only don't go very far, just a little bit outside the border, and plead for me. It's another partial concession. Okay, you can leave the land, but stay close by. And Moses accepts. He says, behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead to the Lord that tomorrow the swarms of flies depart from Pharaoh and from his servants and from his people. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go sacrifice. Okay, they've struck a deal, but Moses recognizes that maybe Pharaoh is not the most trustworthy person to bargain with. He recognizes that the Pharaoh may renege on the deal, and indeed he does. And so the Lord sends another warning. Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. Again, though, but the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall, shall die. Again, the Lord's judgment separates. Sometimes ant livestock die just because livestock die. That happens, okay? Not every time your, your herd gets hoof and mouth doesn't mean God is judging you. But by separating between the animals of the Egyptians and the animals of Israel, God is making a point that he is in the land he is the cause of this plague. The land of Egypt was ruined by flies, 8.25 says. Verse 6 says, all the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of all the people of Israel died. We do need to note here as an aside an important feature of Old Testament rhetoric. Uh, that is the way things are expressed, the way they tell the stories. Verse 6 says, all of the Egyptians' livestock died from this plague. But then, as we'll read next week in 919, the Egyptians are warned to bring their livestock in out of the field or the hail will kill them. So all the livestock are killed, and yet there's more livestock to be killed. Uh, it's not a contradiction. It's just the way that the Old Testament writers tell the story. So it's a bit like in sports radio if we heard on the Seahawks were annihilated in last night's game and we hope they can rally for next week's game. We don't see any contradiction because we're used to sports commentators talking like that. Okay, the Seahawks aren't literally now dead, right? But they're annihilated. Likewise, in the Old Testament, military victories are often described with this sort of comprehensive language. So in Joshua, it said, not a single thing that breathed is left in the land. Here, all the livestock died, 
And yet, a few verses later, there's livestock left alive. For the ancient Israelites and readers familiar with Old Testament rhetoric, they'd understand this is hyperbole. Okay? It's saying it was a massive victory. And indeed, this is a catastrophic plague on Egypt's livestock. It's interesting then, Pharaoh sends out investigators to find out what happened in Goshen. And they come back and report, indeed, not a single one of the Israelites' uh, herd died or their livestock died. And yet, nevertheless, he hardens his heart again. Clearly, this is more than a natural plague because hoof and mouth doesn't stop at the borders between one county and the next magically, right? Diseases spread, but somehow this disease stops at the border of Goshen. Pharaoh ignores the significance of this plague and refuses to let Israel go. And so then the people of Egypt are struck with ulcers and sores without any warning. And perhaps the, the soot from the kilns is used to cause these ulcers and sores as a reminder that this is the sort of thing Israel has been bearing under their servitude for years. Working at these hot kilns making bricks would cause all sorts of blisters and sores. The Lord's judgment separates. It distinguishes. That's part of what judgment does, is it divides one thing from another. It sets apart but that's not the end of the story. In Isaiah 19, Isaiah warns that the Lord will again judge Egypt for their hubris. But then Isaiah looks beyond judgment to hope. Moses warns the Egyptians, or he says, our sacrifices are an abomination to you. You'll stone us if you see this. But Isaiah says, in that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of Egypt in the middle of Egypt. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. Moses is sent to deliver Israel from oppression to the Egyptians, but Isaiah looks ahead to a day when the Egyptians will cry to the Lord because of their oppressors, and he will send them, the Egyptians, a savior and defender. On that day, Isaiah says, the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. They will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord, and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. So the Lord's judgment separates Israel from Egypt, but God sets his people apart as a witness to Egypt. And then there is in the Old Testament a long-term hope that by setting Israel apart, it will ultimately lead to the Egyptians being brought in. And uh, church tradition tells us that St. Mark in AD 42 went and established a church in Egypt, uh, known today as the Coptic Church. And there has been a church in Egypt that has been persecuted for much of its life and yet continues to be there to this day. The Lord's judgment separates but then God uses his people as a witness to those on the outside. Uh, we'll look at next week when we consider more in depth the theme of the Pharaoh's heart, Romans 9. But that's some of the same dynamic there. That God's judgment separates for a time between Jews and Gentiles and yet has, uh, by that very act of separation, shows God's mercy uh, as a witness to the Jews. Stepping back for a moment then, looking over this cycle of plagues as a whole, there's a third point I want to reflect on. The Lord uh, is in the midst of the land. The Lord's judgment separates. But then third, the Lord's mission engages his people. 
the Lord's mission engages his people. Sometimes we talk about mission as if God is simply out there doing his own thing, and it's the job of humans through their mission work to make God known. But Exodus shows us a slightly different, more biblical model of mission. Remember, Pharaoh asks in chapter 5 that key question, who is the Lord? I don't know him, and therefore I will not listen to him. And so then part of God's fundamental mission in Exodus, as we have seen, is to reveal himself, to make himself known. So he says, I'm going to do these things so that you will know I am the Lord. I'm going to do these things so you'll know that I am the Lord in your midst. I'm going to do these things so that you will know I am the Lord and there is no other like me. Okay, so God is fundamentally already engaged in mission of making himself known. It's fundamentally God's own mission. It's something he does. But then the Lord's mission engages his people. And so our role is to participate in work that God is already doing, that he's already engaged in. And here Moses is our example. He's an apt example because he's engaged in God's mission in the midst of a land that is actively hostile towards both the Lord and his people. And he shows us what it looks like to participate in God's mission in a hostile context. Participates in God's mission in two basic ways, proclaiming and interceding. Proclaiming and interceding. First, by proclaiming, Moses speaks to Pharaoh for God. Uh, it's there so often in the plagues, we can kind of skip over it. But this basic dynamic, Moses speaks warnings to Pharaoh on God's behalf. Each of these uh, cycles of plagues goes through warning after warning. Uh, you might have noticed in, the, in the, both of these uh, fourth and fifth plague where warnings are given, saying this is going to happen tomorrow. Here's a chance to repent. Tomorrow, judgment is coming. And yet, time and time again, Pharaoh ignores the Lord's warning. He ignores God's word that Moses speaks. And so what does Moses do? Does he you know, wipe his hands of the situation and leave? No, Moses continues to faithfully proclaim God's word even to a hostile audience. What does that mean for us? Okay, what it doesn't mean is actively trying to get rejected. Uh, sometimes I think Christians holding signs along the routes of pride parades, that sort of thing, have a sort of perverse delight in being rejected by those they're ostensibly trying to witness to. But that's not Jesus' attitude. He weeps over Jerusalem knowing that they would reject him. It's not Paul's attitude either. He says he would rather be cut off himself if his people could be brought in. And indeed, we see in Moses' example, he actively engages in negotiating with Pharaoh. He engages in back and forth. He's not saying God's word in a way that it won't be heard, but he's trying to win a hearing. What Moses' example means for us is that we are faithful to present God's word unyielding, even under pressure and threat. And a central part of that act is what we do together on Sundays. We gather together in the midst of a community that is indifferent or at times even hostile to God's word, and we worship publicly as a witness to our surrounding community. God's word is read publicly, and it's proclaimed publicly. Sunday morning is a witness in the midst of our community. So the first thing Moses does to participate in God's mission is to proclaim God's word. Second, Moses intercedes. Moses speaks to God for Pharaoh. 
In 828, Pharaoh agrees, at least for a moment, to let Israel go. And what price does he name? He'll let them go for a prayer. Plead for me. Four times, Pharaoh asks Moses to intercede on his behalf. Moses sees that Pharaoh keeps going back on his word. He continually hardens his heart. And yet, what does Moses do? Every time that Pharaoh asks Moses to pray for him, Moses agrees and prays for him. Moses is continually willing to pray for his enemy, to intercede towards this man, for this man who is hostile to both Moses and Moses' God. So what do we see in Moses' example? What does it look like for him to participate in God's mission of making himself known? He speaks to Pharaoh for God, and he speaks to God for Pharaoh. This is priestly work, mediating between God and humans. Moses' example is acting like a priest to a hostile people. They don't even want him to be their priest, and yet here he is speaking God's word to them, interceding for them to God. Again, it's, a, it's an example for us. Peter calls the church a royal priesthood. The church corporately and each individually are called to act as priests, to represent God in the midst of our community and to represent our community to God. And so that's our mission. We present God to our community no matter how hostile they may be, uh, and we represent our community to God in prayer. So the church faithfully participates in God's mission through the ministry of word and sacrament in the midst of a community that thinks worship is irrelevant and may even be hostile to the message we bear. And then individually throughout the work, we faithfully witness to God's word through our lives and our words. It doesn't mean that we turn our job uh, that we're supposed to be doing into some sort of a evangelistic project as if it's, you know, every day at work's a big tent meeting where you're declaring hellfire and damnation, that sort of thing. But what is, uh, Peter goes on in his letter to say, be ready to give the reason for the hope that you have. You live and work with hope, and when someone asks you why you live and work in this way, you're ready with an answer. Jesus describes this work of, of presenting God to our community and, and representing our community to God in prayer as being like salt that halts the decay of our community. In a sense, there's a difference between the old covenant where we see uh, Egypt and Goshen being distinguished and the new covenant where we're not called to all go live in some land that's set apart, maybe Canada or something like that, all the Christians there and everybody else somewhere else, we're scattered throughout. There's little bits of Goshen all over the place. And because of our public witness in the midst of this community, it's part of the reason why God's judgment doesn't fall on the community as strongly as it might otherwise. It's part of the reason why our community does not decay as much as it might otherwise. Jesus calls this being salt, being light in the midst of darkness. Of course, the church can only fulfill this mission, can only participate in God's mission, the work he's already doing through Christ Jesus. Jesus fulfills this whole priestly role. God is already on mission, making himself known, and Jesus is the pinnacle of that mission, of making God known. In himself, in the incarnation, Christ is God's word to humanity. It is God speaking to a hostile audience. In himself, through his death and resurrection and ascension, Christ Jesus presents humanity united to himself before the throne of God. So the incarnation shows us what it means that the Lord is in our midst. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. God in our midst for both redemption and judgment. 
And through Christ, the Lord's judgment separates. Judgment falls on Christ first, and all those who are in Christ are then set apart and spared from the judgment we deserve. All those who are opposed to Christ must face judgment in their own strength. But make no mistake, we all will one day face a just judge. Separation is a witness. And the Lord's mission engages his people. So the church is called to live as the body of Christ in the world. Uh, His head's in heaven, his body is here on earth, and you and I are to live as that body. So mission is not some work we do on our own. It's something that we do united to Christ, participating in the work God is already doing. The Lord is in our midst. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you that you are in our midst. We confess that daily, weekly, we live in ways that deny your presence. And yet we ask that each person in this room would know your presence in every area of their life more and more, and that they would find your presence life-giving. Lord, transform our lives as you are in our midst. We recognize that your judgment separates between your people and the world, and yet we ask that we as your people would live in a way that faithfully witnesses to the world, that they might be drawn into your community, your people. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who reveals yourself, makes yourself known. We ask that we would faithfully participate in that mission. Lord, there are some here today who have never put their trust in Jesus Christ. May these stern warnings of judgment coming, even now, force them to consider what they will do on the final day when they stand before you, the just judge. By your Holy Spirit, do not strengthen their heart, harden their heart like Pharaoh, but rather break hearts, weaken our hearts to be receptive to your word. And may in our weakness we embrace Christ, our only true hope. Amen.